Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Between the lines is over. All the news behind the news. And some hippie smut. Hey, you really gonna quit the main line? Why stick around? Okay, why does anybody get up in the morning? You don't. I, don't. I think we should get rid of them. That's insane. The whole office is gonna get up and walk out. Roy Walsh buys this paper, I'm walking. Me too. Me too. Me too. Well, that's that. We had some good times here, didn't we? Who really shook things up? Everybody in the unemployment line. I had you going there for, for a second, didn't I? Between the lines, Andy, between the lines. It, you could argue that this is the most journalisty of the journalist movies we've talked about just based on the numbers of people who call themselves journalists in this movie. Whether or not we see them doing any active journalism. Yeah, if it's a couch-based thing, then yeah. certainly. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, I feel like uh, Boat People, our first one, um, is likely the one that is most yeah. uh, journalistic. I mean, I guess The Weight of Water is to that extent also, because, I mean, she's actively researching a story. Yeah, Uh, I know. But and this one, you don't I mean, there is some, but there's so much of this that just because it's a very much an ensemble uh, piece looking at the life of people who work at this place. And so you're getting some stories about stories, some stories about life in the office and some stories about life outside the office. Yeah, right, right. Which is fine, uh, because that's not what the movie is about, right? The movie is it ends up being about not the the actual sort of shoe leather journalism that that we may aspire to, but it's about the chaos of these people living and working together. It's about youth catching up with everyone uh, or or the world, the real world catching up with everyone uh, eventually, uh, the ticking clock that is life. and and that's okay. It just so happens to be set in this alt uh, newspaper, and uh, and I I find it well. What do you think? I thought of this movie. I've already spoiled that. Well, you you, you told us last week. I you did. It, so I, I would pretty much know. What did, do you think? Do you think I? I think you didn't like it as much as I did. I think interesting. Yeah, I think you didn't. I think you. Okay. I think it, there were things about it that turned you off. Well, this movie was rated R. Uh, when it was released here in the United States, um, there's some sex and nudity, uh, you know, strip club stuff. That's mostly what it is. I mean, you know, there's the usual other things, profanity, alcohol, drugs, smoking, stuff like that. But Hey, do you want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, if you see an Apple or an Amazon link to the movie in our show notes, just click on it. It will take you right to the site. You can rent or buy the movie. When you do this, we get a little tiny piece in return. Win-win. Hey, and you should check out our merch store. I tried this weekend to do a little bit of work on the merch and get get a couple of new uh, art pieces up there, but Adobe was foiling me. Adobe really messed with me. So uh, I'm working on it, but I'm thinking this week. I think this is the very week that we'll have some new uh, new goodies for our last series uh, up in the store. I don't know what this one's going to be. I think it just needs to be the paper. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. No, we're going to advertise the paper. That'll be great. TrueStory.fm slash TNR merch. You can uh, actually sport uh, the newspaper logo. Maybe it'll have the word smut on it. Hippie <laughs> smut. Hippie smut. 
<laughs> your your home for your favorite hippie smut. And and this will be right on the heels of our trip to Smutty Nose. Welcome to Smutty Nose. That's true. Wow. <laughs> so funny. Hey, we are featuring audio reviews from you. If you've seen the movie, email us your 30-second audio review to reviews at truestory.fm. As soon as you watch the movie, we just might end up showcasing your voice on the show. You got to get them in quick, though. We record about two weeks in advance. So make sure you are tracking our uh, upcoming shows so that you can watch them ahead and get those reviews sent in. Again, send them to reviews at truestory.fm. Andy, how would I ever possibly know what the upcoming shows are? You guys are a complete mystery over at the next reel. How would we ever know what movies are coming around the corner? To which you would say, don't worry, Pete. If you're wondering where you can see what movies we're talking about in the coming weeks for the, and for the rest of the entire season, you can see the entire series rundown on our Letterboxd HQ page. While you're there, sign up for a pro or patron membership with the discount code NEXTREEL or just visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D and you'll get 20% off. That works for renewals as well. And also, you can you can tune in to us when we're actually recording the shows by checking our live stream calendar, which is available. Why don't you tell people where it's available, Pete? Uh, if you visit truestory.fm slash TNR live, uh, that's we've I've embedded the Google calendar that there. And so it it does not yet have all of the specific n- names of the movies, but we're working on that. So if you it, the, by the time you get this. We'll have gone in and updated the actual movies we're recording on those days. If you do want to support the show, uh, we would love it if you would sign up to become a member. Just head over to our site and you can uh, b- sign up to become a member either a month to month or at the annual rate. And you get all sorts of goodies. Early access to every episode. That's one of the things you get. They do. Members get early access to every episode. And they also get so many bonus episodes. Uh, it, I think we're getting better at our retake episodes. What is a retake episode? That's such a great question. A retake episode is an episode that we do just for members only, where we, Andy and I, talk through all of the movies we've talked about in a given series and uh, just to kind of distill some lessons learned. What have we learned about the filmmaker, uh, the performances, the, the direction, the cinematography uh, uh, across all the movies of a given series? How do they connect? How do they really not connect? Uh, should the journalist series have actually had more journalists in it? It's all great questions, and we'll be covering that on the retake for this series. We also have our monthly member bonus episodes that fill in a gap from one of our series. Uh, our January one recently came out. It was Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, which filled in a gap in our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series, as well as our Cary Grant series. What is our February member bonus going to be? You'll only find out and get to vote on it if you are a member. The other thing we've got is this monthly flick chart re-ranking episode where we uh, shake up our flick chart list and mostly we just try to get uh, Prince movies up higher and keep 2001 right where it is. That's the entire initiative. <laughs> Every other movie we get through is just biding time to get to those matchups. Uh, and so we do that once a month and it's uh, super fun. Just head to truestory.fm slash TNR membership where you can learn more about the different tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 per month or $55 per year. Between the lines, Andy, I, yeah, I love this movie. I had a, I had just a blast with it. I I love the cast. I love this kind of movie. I love the setting. I love the conflict. And I think I love the conflict because I, I feel like my time in a newsroom was met by, with uh, so many of these, uh, these sort of capitalist conflicts too like you you know the initiative the reason you go into journalism is not so that you can aspire to be um you know a, a participant in a corporate takeover right that that's not why uh people join uh, j school programs <laughs> normally they they don't want to be on that side of the table um that's those are people who go into advertising and marketing <laughs> And so this this movie, I think, was really fun for me because, you know, I I remember those meetings with advertisers who come in and said, you know, if we sponsor your show, we want to be able to talk about the things we want to talk about. Uh, and we want you on your news broadcast to talk about things the way we want to want you to talk about them. And, um, you know, as a as a way for money to influence the media. And I've been in those meetings and. 
uh, they're uh, they're uncomfortable, they're difficult, and this movie to me is a showcase of the just how long that conflict has been going on between the the private sector and the you know the media and the fact that they're able to sort of have those kinds of conversations in this movie and do it in a way that's funny and with people that I I genuinely like throughout the entire thing um just really they they had me from jump did you did you like it oh i loved it oh what a relief yeah absolutely loved it it's it, it's um i mean it's it's such a great idea especially for this type of paper which is kind of you know i mean i think every area has one of this type of paper where it's kind of like that alt news um you know it's people who are wanting to dig a little deeper and aren't trusting the trusting the man and you know and and the people who work at this paper are the people who were were the hippies out in the 60s and and they they really wanted to kind of create this space where they could kind of get this stuff out there and and so yeah they they were working at this paper that you know i mean john hurt's character was there from the beginning and you know had kind of like they 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 built this thing up to kind of be a place where they could kind of get these stories out and i mean yeah i mean there's plenty of slacking going on with <laughs> with them but the whole idea is they came from a place of the 60s and now here they are in the 70s and yeah there's these corporate takeovers of these papers that are are disappearing and that personality of what they stand for is getting sucked into this corporate machine that wants to quote continue what it stands for but really are just there as another form of making more money and so you've got to toe the line and and watching kind of you know the way that the film plays out especially as we get into the the end as the corporate takeover happens i mean it's i think it's really telling and uh it kind of paints an, a an interesting picture that like you said is still going on with with any of these sorts of things that you know people create and get out there and it becomes popular and so what happens you know the people who are owning it want to sell it to make money off of it and it turns into a corporate thing and then all of a sudden the whole point of it kind of collapses and i think depending on who you ask today that the, the war has been won right there there are fewer and fewer i think or news organizations that are fighting this battle healthily right especially when you talk about local news and hyper local news so would you say the war has been won or the war has been lost <laughs> like who's well it's already for me the war has been lost for yeah, sure I was gonna say. Uh, the, the war has absolutely <laughs> been lost we we lost the war and um you know we we didn't but we it, it's interesting that we didn't lose it the way we thought we were going to lose it right i think uh and and this movie would be inter- an, an interesting and nay impossible remake because um you know so many of the factors at work in this movie um are are tiny drops in the ideological bucket once you bring, you know, social media, Facebook, you know, news organization into into bear and and the attention seeking bit. You you don't have street hawkers um you know on on the street anymore selling papers into your into your uh, <laughs> selling papers uh, and, window. and hooking up. <laughs> yeah, John Corks is fantastic. And and so I I think that uh, this, as much as this is a a hard story from the perspective of of you know someone who was in media early on, it's also charming in the things that are important to it. Um, it it's also I I think we we need to talk about John Hurd because this is also the crossover episode for our John Hurd series, and I I don't know that I would call him the protagonist of this movie. It's definitely an ensemble piece, but he's the one with the worldview that I'm following the hardest, right? Because, um, you know, he's the one who was the great sort of beat reporter. He had written the award-winning exposés, and now he's really struggling with where he fits as the world changes around him. The New York Times, uh, original New York Times review, had this great line, and I think it's reflective of Hurd's uh, place in the film. This is a movie about uh, growing up after you've grown up. Right. Because they're they're all ostensibly adults, but they still don't know how to adult. And and he's he's really struggling with that. And he becomes the sort of bellwether for what is going on in, um, you know, in this newspaper and, and you know, really the soul of the place uh, as people at the top start changing. And he was also, I think, terrific 
I, I completely agree. Um, one quick note to, to clear something up. It is absolutely 100% Michael J. Pollard playing the Hawker, not John Corks. Uh, Michael J. You're Pollard. Right. You're right. Is You're so, Michael J. Pollard. I, I love him so yeah. much in absolutely everything. He's just such a, a face that I will always, always cherish in film because he's so great. Uh, but John Hurd is the, the, the heart and soul of the film. He is the protagonist, 100%. Without a doubt, he is the character who, um, despite the fact that we're following so many stories over the course of this, uh, the relationships, the uh, the drama within the workplace, um, the story dramas, whatever it is, there's all these different dramas going on. But it is John Hurd's story as Harry, both in the paper and, and in the relationship, that is the one that kind of um, is largely the crux of the story, especially as we get uh, to the end and and uh, see that final conflict between him and the yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the corporate head coming in uh, to take over everything. Um, I don't know. I just I I loved him in the film. I just I found him to be uh, such a great kind of face for the paper and just kind of like the one who is kind of like heading things up and and i just like i don't know he he worked really well as this guy who had been around from the beginning as he said at one point you know when he was kind of showing that picture and and uh you know, i don't know just he felt like somebody who i don't know there's an interesting element with him where like the the point we come into the story with him it also feels a little bit like like you know the paper and like these people from the 60s now in the in the late 70s kind of like figuring out his place like you said trying to figure out how to grow up still absolutely and it, it is like he he gets the the punchline even though everybody is is um you know kind of spreads out and does their own thing like he's he's the one we we follow to the end um and and i just i i just think he's fantastic his little his little dream sequence or fantasy that he has when he runs into roy's office with the gun and then it's like the little suction cup sticks to his forehead that was just great that was right i thought there's no way this movie's not gonna do that there's no way this movie's gonna he's got a gun he's going in i didn't see that oh got it got it got it uh on brand I thought yeah. that was absolutely on brand. Uh, so, but you know that that's not to say that this movie isn't filled with fantastic people. I mean, I think between sort of Jill Eikenberry and Gwen Wells and and um, Lindsay Krauss uh, as as the Abby, his photographer and paramour. Um, you know, I think we we also get a great sense of just sort of the the inherent. Um, at the time, diversity in the newsroom. And um, I, I thought that was great. Although I, I think we, you know, you can see this movie as a representation of just how far newsrooms had to go. You didn't have an equivalent John Hurd uh, on the news staff that was a woman uh, showcased in this movie. I don't, I think, you know, and that was, I think, representative of the time. Well, nor did you have a Joe Morton in no, anywhere right. except no, that's, the that's uh, really advertising true. department. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, and, I mean, Joe Morton's yeah. got pipes, too. Oh, that's what I wrote down. I'm like, wow, <laughs> Joe Morton can sing. <laughs> I know. It was a great little bit in the nightclub as as things were, uh, uh, you know, slowing down at the end of the night where Goldblum gets on the keyboard. And we, we know that Goldblum, you know, is an exceptional um, piano player. And uh, um, it was uh, Stephen Collins picks up the bass and uh, Joe Morton picks up the mic and they actually jam for just a few bars. And it's great. Yeah. Great, great, great. Really fun. What also was a surprise was like Mary Lou Henner. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. she's she's sure is dancing and stripping. Mary, Mary Lou <laughs> Henner is the stripper. I didn't. That was another one I had to. I, well, this sounds bad. I had to back it up. Uh, because I saw it was before they were interviewing her, right? You could see her dancing. And I was like, is Mary Lou Henner a, like a bit player in this? Is she even credited? And then she actually has a part <laughs> in the movie. Like she's actually interviewed. And yeah. uh, I thought she was great. No, I, I it was a fun character to kind of throw in there as like this, a, a character who is, you know, the, the sort of interview that you can see them interviewing, like we're going to interview a, a a dancer at a strip club, 
and talk to her about kind of like the real questions and stuff. But I love the way also that that played out because it was an interesting conflict between her and uh, John Hurd, who was the, quote, reporter doing the interview, and Lindsey Krauss, who was the, quote, photographer taking photos, but was a- asking much more interesting questions than than Harry was. And I was like, gosh, it was, it was I don't know, the dynamics of that. Like it, it, it was like is there was something interesting there that I think was starting to reflect how Harry was kind of in this place where he wasn't like he was becoming kind of a sloppy journalist, right? Like he was not asking the good questions and he was already prejudging his uh, his subject. And I, I thought that was actually kind of interesting. And the fact that we, you know, we get to I think the way he plays falling apart intellectually is really great. Like how many times have you been in that space where you're doing something that professionally, you know, you should be able to do. You've done it before. You know, you have the, you know, deep down, you have the chops to do this thing, but but you care so little that you just can't muster the energy that it takes to do this thing. And that's what I felt like I was looking at with John Hurd's performance here was this guy who we know is an award-winning or was an award-winning reporter. And he he just can't figure out how to turn on the professional stuff because he's so distracted by the fact that he's falling apart and doesn't care. And uh, I thought that was really special. And it really ties into the story, right? And, and kind of the, the place for these people. And perhaps maybe that's part of the reason why the this corporate takeover is happening. It's like this is 10-ish years from the time that it's been founded. Maybe they're floundering and, and he's representing that place where they're they're not quite able to kind of keep up with the times and figure things out. And it, it makes room for that, for Roy and his corporate uh, takeover to happen. Well, it certainly does. And I think there are two things going on there. The first is is just, you know, we've talked about sort of the capitalist takeover and authority, right? Who has where where is uh, ideological authority in the newsroom? Is it in the hands of the reporters and, and, and editors or is it in the hands of the publisher, um, you know, and and the one who has to dance between the two worlds of of uh, profit and performance and is it this collision collision of relationships and purpose and and that i think is what lindsey krauss and john hurd are doing in this movie is lindsey krauss still very much loves what she's doing in her world and she's not ready to to make any change like hurd is like harry is right she's she's just in such a different place in her career that it it redefines what she wants to do and what boundaries in in their relationship she's willing to push against and that creates a, a discon a, a, like a discontinuity between the two of them that i think they um they capture really well on screen it makes their relationship interesting and i think we i i don't think we can talk about this movie without talking about how those relationships are influenced by the spaces in which they live i love that they are shooting all of this movie in apartments and buildings that appear to be real to where these people would have lived in the city. And uh, they are tiny and horrible and uh, and fantastic. And I think they they use the space to boil over performances when appropriate. That I, I think is really special. I thought it was it just looked so authentic to to the piece and to the period. I, I also recently just watched Tick, Tick, Boom. And there was an element where, you know, he's living in that film in this really tiny apartment where his shower and bathtub is like in the kitchen, you know, yeah. in the back of the kitchen. And it's just like <laughs> there's this there's this place where you're living in certain big cities in the in the country where pricing was just, you know, not friendly to people. And for these people who their motivation wasn't necessarily money, it was the journalistic integrity and not working nine to five and and being out there constantly ready to kind of get the story and stuff and being hungry and all that. And that means that you're not necessarily going to have the greatest places. And so when you see John Hurd's little tiny place and, you know, he's got that little bedroom with uh, kind of the French doors and everything, it just it, it all feels just so compressed. And I, I think that that uh, worked uh, very well. Bruno Kirby is David Entwistle. He is the young uh, reporter, <laughs> and young writer getting his start. Uh, and uh, also just love that 
I, I know that there is, you know, it, it just feels to me like this, there could be a universe in which Bruno Kirby started at this paper and then moved to New York and, and, um, it becomes the protagonist in When Harry Met Sally. If it were just for <laughs> a butterfly flapping its wings in Tokyo, you know what I mean? I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was great. So funny. And that was one of the things that, you know, I really enjoy about this type of ensemble film where you do have these different stories of people that you're kind of tracking across this this place. And yeah, I thought it worked well, especially opposite like both John Hurd's character, Harry and Jeff Goldblum's character, Max, having this character that Bruno Kirby was playing, David, as this young new reporter who really was just completely trying to figure this out and and all of the stuff at the beginning as he's um like trying to get these interviews and the way that he's talking and everything i don't know it was just it was very fun to kind of watch him try to figure out what he was doing i i had a great time uh with him and it, it, it building to the end where he is like the guy who's been around, I, I don't want to say the longest, I don't know how many people might have left, but he's the one who's giving advice now to some other new kid who's who's coming up. It was, it was fun to see. Which was great. Just great. Because he, he also had to learn how to give advice, right? And you could see he's like everywhere we see him, he's learning something, right? He's learning how to talk to people in some kind of new way. He's just sort of clumsy, uh, which was great. I want to talk a little bit about how the thing is shot and cut together because I think it's, uh, uh, it, it's given the complexities of a big ensemble cast like this. I think, um, you know, Joan Micklin Silver, our, our director did a fantastic, uh, job of telling all of these stories in a way that felt lifelike to me. And the scene that I think is, is the strongest representation of that is the, the actual dance club scene. The way she uses cutting to move between these discrete conversations around the club as people are dancing. Some of them, try, one, some is trying to come on to somebody else. Uh, we have uh, Heard and, and uh, Lindsey Krause, or, uh, Harry and Abby are fighting. Uh, and we've got, uh, but we have probably, and, and we have the, uh, um, Entwistle is trying to get uh, into a conversation between potential new owner he's heard about. We've got, um, you know, everybody's having, I mean, there's probably five or Michael, six Michael different Michael and Laura conversations. fight too. Yeah, yeah. Michael and Laura are fighting too. They, we've got five or six conversations and going Max, on here. We, we've got to say, Jeff Goldblum had some of the best hip dancing I've seen. Yes. Let's just oh, say. yes. That yeah, was some fantastic. fine in that, in that red dance. jacket, like, <laughs> that red like, sateen jacket was amazing. Um, and and I never once felt like I was losing the thread of any one of them. Right. I think it was an incredibly efficient way to tell this to tell to move all of these stories forward in one location that I'm sure was a nightmare to shoot, uh, but was so well used in this it what didn't feel clumsy it didn't feel um you know overplayed uh it it felt v just very much like we're moving everybody's story forward here in a way that feels organic and and human it really did and, and that is something um i um i have heard people talking about uh, joan micklin silver i have i'm coming late to the game um with her as as a filmmaker uh, and it, sadly, I mean, we just lost her uh, in 2020, but uh, those st sort of projects that she had been working on, um, like, I, I feel like there's a lot of really interesting uh, stuff out there that she had done. She's definitely somebody who has a kind of a, a feel like I loved the the feel of this world she created. And, and you know, we're going to be the next film we're going to be uh, talking about is another of her films. As, uh, we should mention this is a journalist series the end of our journalist series, but it's also the beginning of our John Hurd series. And the next film we're going to be talking about is another film that she did with John Hurd called Chilly Scenes of Winter. And so it'll be nice to kind of have two Joan Micklin Silver films together so we can really kind of compare um, what she's doing in her storytelling style. Because, um, I mean, just out of the gate with this, the way that she crafted it, like I was constantly engaged with these characters and with the world and just the shifting. It always worked for me. I, I was just I, I found it quite mesmerizing. Yeah, I think so, too. It was interesting to hear um, Ray talking about how he said, you know, they, they had used their earnings from her first film, Hester Street, uh, 1975, historical romantic drama. 
he said, but by 1978, when we were distributing between the lines, it was difficult to get theaters we wanted or the numbers we wanted. We'd ask for 12 theaters in Atlanta. We'd get six. Uh, in this industry landscape, a human interest story with no special effects or chart-topping soundtrack and headlined by a cast of young unknowns had an incredibly difficult, difficult time reaching audiences. Uh, and I, I can absolutely see that, but I would not have pegged this as a second film. Uh, there was a TV movie in between the two, Bernice Bob's Her Hair, which is also something that she's gotten a lot of praise for. Technically, this would be her third if you count that one. Okay. Yeah. But still, I just like the, the her storytelling style. And then the one that I always heard people talking about, um, probably my mom more than anything, was Crossing Delancey, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, that was a film that very much got a lot of um, a lot of buzz when it came out. And so that's, you know, I, I just think that there's a, a line of storytelling style that Joan McLean Silver had that, I don't know, I'm very compelled after watching this film to go and track down more of her projects. Me too. Absolutely. Um, I, I need to talk just a, a bit about Ray Berry as Herbert Fisk, conceptual artist. <laughs> I love this scene so much. It might be my favorite scene in the entire film. It is uh, at one point, Ray Berry shows up and he he the first thing he does, he walks into the newsroom and he picks up the typewriter off of the receptionist's desk, uh, Jill Eikenberry's desk, and smashes it on the ground and says that you have been, uh, you've just experienced a conceptual art piece by Herbert Fisk and hands a card and says, I would like to meet with a reporter. <laughs> and then we get Peak Goldblum, who comes out and in order to, I guess, ground this conceptual art piece of violence in reality begins tearing uh, uh, alternately tearing the newsroom lobby apart and naming all of the art conceptual art pieces, uh, throwing paper, calling it paper in flight, kicking the coffee machine and calling it kicked coffee machine, uh, <laughs> punching the wall, wall removed with fist and fingers. <laughs> ripping ripping the ad guy's uh, um, the shirt open and calling it Stanley exposed. I was dying by the end of the scene. I was dying. I thought it was fantastic. Fantastic bit of humor. And I think it, it really shows just sort of the way she uses, she's able to use these kind of set pieces, I think, really artfully to, to keep the thing moving forward and keep the, the art and the humor moving forward. And Boy, to use her players exactly right. I think this is this is what gives us uh, Jeff Goldblum's kind of wackiness. I I, I think he's just so so great uh, and uh, fun to see Ray Berry in this very very bit part. A very bit part, and it works well. Uh, you know, with the reporter who pretty much kind of like you know puts this faux artist in his place, right? Like, yeah. I felt like... We're not, not going to report on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if Herbert Fisk really was somebody who had something, like, I felt like he would have been able to take it and would have been able to do something more that actually would have shown them, like, oh, okay, you know what? All right, we will talk to you. But, like, the way that it played, it was just yeah. perfect. It's like, I mean, sure, the office is destroyed, but Goldblum, like, the way that he kind of ends that and just, and, and Fisk walks out, I just like, that was just fantastic. So much fun. It, it really, really was. I don't think, I, I think this may be, uh, it's tough because I've seen Jeff Goldblum, his first uh, picture, uh, credited picture was Death Wish. He was freak number one in 1974. Oh, he sure was. Yeah, He sure was. He did uh, California Split, 74, Nashville. Seen Nashville. He was Tricycle Man. Next stop, Greenwich Village, St. Ives, Special Delivery, The Sentinel. Uh, and then Between the Lines in 77. So he... he and Annie Hall also 77, yeah. Yep, Annie Hall in 77 too. So he'd done... Uh, he'd done a bunch of stuff and some TV spots, Columbo and and the Blue Knight. But I was this. I haven't seen the Sentinel or Special Delivery. Uh, was this his biggest film role at the time? Is this like his first big film role? Have you seen any of those other movies? I mean, Nashville. I mean, he was he was certainly a character in that one. You know, yeah, I mean, it's right, an ensemble right. piece. I can't speak to any of those other ones. I haven't seen any of them, so I can't. I can't tell you where he where he landed in the film, but um, I feel like 
this was probably the area where things start getting bigger for him because then you have shortly after this, like the very next year, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and he's definitely a bigger part there. Big chill. You know, like I, I have a feeling they're smaller. I just, you know, I'd have to go see them all, but that that's my sense. Uh, but to that end, this was, uh, you know, for a number of people, their film debut, including Raymond J. Berry, uh, who you were just talking about. Also, John Hurd and Joe Morton and Guy Boyd. So um, they all uh, started here. Great. Uh, great way to great way to kick off a career. What a fun film. Yeah, absolutely. What else is what else is hot on your list? Let me check my notes. Oh, Jeff, we got to see Jeff Goldblum teaching the girls about rock and roll and Blackbird. <laughs> <laughs> was was another great one yeah wither, what is the connection thither, between yeah wither, hither thither thing <laughs> yes that just uh, that cracked me up what is the connection between all these things beat 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 the answer is that there's no connection except that they're both about a blackbird like that that is his big <laughs> teaching moment is a is a troll i think what i thought was really great so well that ahead. was such a Sorry. such a strange little scene because i'm like is he I mean, is he actually teaching something here? It's all women. Is he just putting something together because it's just just to get, you know, the numbers of all these hot women? Like, what is he doing? His character is so funny. Well, and that's what's so great about his character is that he's a bozo. He's just such a bozo. And like he's never all of his conversations with the editor are like just sort of why you you never get anything to me. You're like this great, you know, rock and roll critic and you're you're a complete deadbeat. Like you're just all show. Like, what is it that you that you're actually bringing me in terms of something I can publish? And then he's also a teacher and. Uh, what is he, you know, is he, is this like, is he a guest teacher? Is this just a side gig? Like, you know, he's, he's just so alt that that's why people, you know, love him, that he's no, there's no substance, uh, all style. <laughs> and, um, I, I think that's really great. And the fact that he's a bozo in the classroom too, like he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's, he knows how he feels. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the film ends with him, you know, he's in a different jacket. Like he loses his red jacket, yeah. uh, which is like a defining kind of part of his character and just kind of that red jacket. And at the end, and I noted, I'm like, he's in a much nicer jacket. He's going to Oregon. Is this him growing up? Like, has he, because of all the sh- the shifts and everything that's changed? I mean, we know he met those cute girls from Oregon. Perhaps that's why he's going. But he also looks more serious. But also, you know, the film ends on that fantastic moment where he is uh, talking to some guy in the bar. And basically, he has no money. And he, like, just the way that he cons this guy in the kindest way possible to end up buying him drinks at, based on on his name and who he is when this guy finds out like oh i've been reading you for years and it's like oh yeah well, let's have another drink you know and it's like it was just it, i don't know i felt like that was such a, a fantastic moment for the character like i just loved i loved the way that he is just using all of that to get drinks <laughs> Well, I have to talk about that guy because that guy is uh, is an interesting guy. His name is Douglas Kenny, and he was the co-founder of National Lampoon Magazine and the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Oh. And he had he is a, a, a pretty quiet guy, um, didn't uh, have a lot going on and particularly didn't have a lot going on because he fell off a cliff in Hawaii in 1980 and died. Oh. A horrible way to go, but an incredibly important guy in comedy writing in particular and if you ever read the diaries of uh what's her name uh agnew it was a it was a column in in national lampoon magazine that was so ridiculously funny that uh, in terms of just his his straight satire at the harvard lampoon um you can see just you know why he ended up being who he was and really sad that that he didn't stick around much longer than that wow he was he was a producer on caddyshack and like he's he's uh he was in he was stork in in animal house yeah uh after this but not a whole lot jeez you can find his uh there are a lot of great like clips if you search hard enough of the old uh national lampoon magazine uh that you can find the pdfs of uh, that have been scanned and and uh really neat to to read some of his his work and it was a fun little uh cameo there well and speaking of writers i mean we should mention you know fred baron and david helpern 
uh, who, uh, David Helpern Jr., who collaborated on this, uh, you know, this is something, I mean, Fred Barron had written for the Phoenix and the Real Paper and kind of some alt newspapers. Uh, Joan Micklin Silver had once, once worked for the Village Voice. And uh, I, I think that it was based off of a little bit the Boston Phoenix. I, I don't know. I felt like they found a way into this world that worked really well. And so I, I liked that. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess when I, I learned that the writers and the director had experience in this world, like it totally clicked for me because everything just felt so lived in. Oh, yeah. There there was nothing in here that felt like it was it was foreign to the writers. I never got any uh, any other sense that it, it was anything but loved space. Like these were people who had been there. It was the production design, the I mean, the works. This was a world that that. Uh, I got. I think there is that hero moment where um, uh, Bruno Kirby gets beaten up. Uh, there's the the fight at the end of the alley, and that was the one piece that just sort of took me out of it, only because yeah, I never got beaten up as a <laughs> behind the camera, and so it was hard to. It was just hard to to relate to that. I know they're they're digging into hard things and asking hard questions of hard people, but it that felt like the stretch to me. And I wasn't sure exactly what the purpose was of putting him in that sort of uh, threatening situation. Um, I, I don't know how it necessarily moved his story forward. Uh, just putting him through some stuff. Uh, I don't know. I, I think there are other more realistic ways of of getting that point across. Yeah, I wasn't sure because the way that, uh, I mean, Max so much was the guy who is kind of um, pushing him into these sorts of situations to kind of like get him to grow and become a better reporter and stuff. So I, I was like, is he like, is this that moment where perhaps Max realizes that he, he pushed him a little too far with this particular person who is like a, a, a criminal is what it seemed like. Like, is that is that kind of what happened and realize, oh, you know what, I I, he's too naive. He doesn't know how to read this sort of situation and realize that he's he's being conned right here. Well, and how much of it is just straight up Max hazing him in some way, shape or form. Right. Like like, I, I you know, I I think that's a that might be a dated a, a bit more of a dated conceit is putting someone else's career in danger or life in danger because from because it was a some sort of a haze maybe I, part of it felt like you know i, I don't know and maybe i i you know i'm reading too much into kind of the boston gang element <laughs> like kind of like that the gangster world um but with this sort of paper and the alt news that they're pushing to get these sorts of stories you know, I, I guess I wouldn't have put it past them to be digging deep to the point where they potentially were getting threats and stuff. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. But but do you agree that it felt discontinuous with the rest of the, the film? Like it was such a short. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a, a short beat. No, I, I definitely yeah, agree. It gives us yeah. what it gives us is a chase scene in the third act that where we're running through the city. And I don't think the movie needed it. I, I agree. I, I, I do. I do feel. There was something a little funky about that. But, you know, this is coming out a year after uh, just uh, I mean, thinking in terms of Phoenix and where I live. But this is a year after Don Bowles uh, was killed in in Phoenix, uh, who is a news reporter who was reporting on organized crime. Yeah, well, and, dang it. and so you've got you've got an, you've got a case. Yeah, I just feel <laughs> like they're they're tapping into because that was a big story, you know, and, and it still is a little bit of a mystery as far as like, you know, who killed him. And all that, um, uh, you know, at, at least here in Arizona, people still talk about it. Um, so it, I, I just feel like it probably was in the zeitgeist that this sort of thing, you know, reporters who do put themselves out there to do this investigative journalism are potentially putting themselves at risk. All right. That's fair. That's fair. And I think uh, anything else we need to cover uh the yeah, only other crazy. note that i had was uh michael Kamen. hey look at that michael Kamen. i know early early composing <laughs> job for him i loved seeing his name pop up um uh for him i mean it wasn't um i don't think he did the full score i think he was one of two composers him and steve van zant awesome yeah yeah good stuff good stuff great uh, movie great movie i'm gonna watch it again uh well we will be right back but first our credits
Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Van Stee, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and the numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, did it do anything at award season? A little bit, a little bit. I had four wins and one other nomination. At the Berlin International Film Festival, um, Joan Micklin Silver won the Interfilm Award. I don't know, it was called the Interfilm Award and called the Otto Debilius Film Award. Uh, so she won that one. She also won the Reader Jury of the Berlin Morgan Post Award, whatever those are. Oh. Uh, the film was nominated for the Golden Berlin Bear, but it lost to the film The Ascent. Also won at the Boston Society of Film Critics Awards uh, in 2019. This is a very recent award for a, it was a special award for best rediscoveries. And the L.A. Film Critics Association Awards gave Joan Micklin Silver the New Generation Award. So a lot of awards very specifically for her and what she was up to. And at the box office, I gather you just decided not to look for numbers this week. I mean, that based on the evidence, that's all I can conclude, right? It's very difficult to find anything for this film. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Yeah, Joan Micklin Silver, uh, this film, it was just a mystery. There was no budget information, no box office take information. What I could find is the film released April 27th, 1977, opposite Francois Truffaut's The Man Who Loved Women, and a month before Star Wars. But that is all that I got. Okay. I know. Okay, I guess that's all we'll do. That's all we're going to um, do. Yeah. Well, I'm really thrilled to end our series on this movie because I think it is, um, it, it's great. It's fun. It's funny. It's a fantastic ensemble film. And I uh, loved being introduced to Micklin Silver's work this way. Uh, we, we should probably uh, do our ratings. And, and we're, you know, we're ending this series, but as I said, we're kicking off our next series, looking at John Hurd and some of his films. Um, so it'll be a fun one. Uh, but we will be right back for those ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Chilly Scenes of Winter. What do you want? What do I want? I want to marry Laura. That's what I want. I thought everybody knew that. Charles loves Laura. Laura likes Charles. I want to sleep with you. Wait a minute. Charles would marry Laura tomorrow. Wait a minute. <laughs> but Laura's already married to a guy called Ox. Joan Micklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter. <laughs> now I'm no longer alone. A comedy about people trying to connect in a disconnected world. I don't think you're that great. As a matter of fact, there's quite a few things about you that I don't like. Yeah? Name one. It's different. It's offbeat. And it's always on target. Yeah. You've heard me. I love your wife. Hey, you show very good taste. It's about temptation. The Lord have mercy on your soul. Thank you. Contemplation. <laughs> adoration. And accusation. Are you seeing someone else? What? It's about deviation. Hi, Mom. And desperation. Don't worry. I'm not going to beg her. Janet. How can I get it if she won't come out of her A-frame? And most of all... Night, Ox. ...the outrageous complications... Night, Laura. ...of Charles' never-ending... Night, Charles. ...infatuation. Night, Sam. John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurd in Chilly Scenes of Winter. All right, Andy. So uh, with all of our glowing um, uh, discussion here, how are you going to how are you going to rate it over at Letterboxd? Um, this is one of those films. It's like I, I just fell into this world and just loved being there. I feel like four stars and a heart is where I'm going to sit. <gasps> That's exactly where I was going to be. I thought there is a chance if you go higher than four stars, you might influence me higher than four stars. But uh, I'm, <laughs> I am I am at four stars and a heart. Um, and it's just, uh, it was a real feel good, <laughs> feel good walk through the history of alt media. Uh, it, it was great and a great introduction. So four stars and a heart. 
Awesome. So what did you think about Between the Lines? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community, where we are going to be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Yes, yes, Letterboxd doeth. Uh, and I went low. Oh, interesting. Very, okay. I went very low. I just decided I would see what's going on at the at the bottom of the barrel. And yeah, it's it. not great. It's not great. Oh, my. Would you like to go first? You want me to start and maybe we climb up to yours? Okay, sounds good. All right. Let's, let's climb I up. I have a one star from Fistrionics who says, where to start? A menagerie of contemptible, self-indulgent blowhards backstabbing each other and jerking themselves off, only to have the inevitable come down and call the party off. Top with a thick layer of self-satisfaction, smarm, and cutesy flair, embarrassingly trying to pass itself off as radical or meaningful. If the boomers are going to lick their wounds this dramatically, could they at minimum provide their position with the least amount of sympathy? Trash people abound in the thinnest of possible plot threads lost forevermore between the lines of good taste <laughs> even working the title into the right review. <laughs> oh. uh, so yeah funny. yes yes outstanding bile wow. mm, poison uh, i like how you took on a character as you like you, yeah there's a little bit i of, didn't yeah. I don't know where it's going to go, that character, but a I can you he'll be, he'll be back. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. Well, I've got a four-star by Christian Ryan, and I can't help but feel like like you wrote this under the alias Christian Ryan. <laughs> 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 this is the review. I want to live in this movie. I'll take the corner desk over by Bruno Kirby, pay for Jeff Goldblum's drinks, and sleep on John Hurd's couch. Michael J. Pollard, Joe Morton, and I will bum around the strip clubs on the nights Mary Lou Henner is dancing, and I'll talk Gwen Wells out of moving to New York with that schmuck. From now on, every penny I throw into a fountain, every wishbone I break, and every birthday candle I blow out, this will be the wish that I make. Okay. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. You nailed it. <laughs> Thanks, Letterbox. <laughs>